Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. Today I talk with Simon Cox, PhD. He's an independent scholar and translator who works primarily in Chinese, Tibetan, and Greek. His research focuses on mysticism and the body, in particular, at least for today's interview, the subtle body. He is also a teacher of Chinese martial arts and collaborator at the Esalen Institute. He also has something interesting in common with me. Listen to the end to find out. So, what links Vajrayana Buddhism and Vajrayogini to Aleister Crowley and the Neoplatonists? Yep, you guessed it, the subtle body, also known as the energy body. This odd phenomena has deep roots in Taoism, Hinduism and Buddhism, but guess what? It also has a rich history in European cultures too. Now, Simon Cox traces its roots in his recent work entitled The Subtle Body, A Genealogy. So, is it real or merely imaginary? Is it just a feature of non-dual ontologies? Or is it more complex than that? Does Buddhism innovate the technology and practices of the subtle body? Do be aware that the first 10 to 15 minutes on my end the sound quality is not as good as it should be. I shall not confess to the error I made. Just know that it's perfectly acceptable to listen to and the sound quality returns to normal soon after. Thank you for your patience. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's dive straight in and find out all about the subtle body with today's guest, Simon Cox. So, Simon, what comes first, the subtle body the physical body, or our assorted concepts of it. I wrote this book called A Genealogy, or The Subtle Body, A Genealogy, is what the title ended up being of the actual monograph. And I'm kind of fleeing from that question um, through the whole <laughs> book, addressing what everybody else has thought about those questions. So at the end, I do kind of like lay my cards on the table and, and hazard my own theory. But it's only after um, really delving into the history of the term and it's um, kind of its genealogy, kind of mimicking the method of like that kind of Nietzsche and Foucault used um, to just sort of explore the history of this idea. Um, so that that's my first dodge for you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and having having read that and, and picked up on that as a fundamentally important point of the entire book, I figured you probably would, but I wanted to try anyway, because it seemed like a good question. <laughs> no, it is. Yeah, it's a good place to begin, I think. So look, um, obviously, the podcast is connected to the world of Buddhism, uh, very much contemporary Western Buddhism. So many of our listeners are Buddhists and will be thinking about the subtle body in alignment with traditions like Tantric Buddhism. But of course, the concept, as you, you rightly lay out in your book, is far greater than that. 
I'd like to pick up on, on a way you describe your book as well. The Subtle Body, you describe it as performing a genealogy of the term, uh, where facts are philological and the trail is built on text. Despite your, your sort of avoidance of that question, I know that the subtle body has a profound meaning or place in your own personal life too. Judging by your background in Chinese martial arts, you've probably had some kind of direct experience of some of the oddness of the whole thing. So before we kind of dive into some of the content of the book, perhaps we can just talk a little bit about you. How have you, have you managed that play between the, the academic world and your own personal relationship with this thing that we have not yet defined. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do have a, a really um, pronounced kind of personal dimension to this that I kind of I bring out in my book. Uh, I, I kind of included that somewhat against my will in the beginning. It was sort of the idea of my thesis advisors to include a, a running kind of audio, autobiographical hmm. mini sections in the book. Um, but eventually I kind of acquiesced and it, much, much to their credit, I think it really enriches um, the text. But yeah, my, my background was in, um, well, in martial arts. That's where I kind of got into this thing at first. And I ended up uh, spending six years living in a a Taoist uh, temple in China, um, where we practiced this kind of lineage that combines martial arts and qigong and the seated meditation called inner alchemy, mm -hmm. um, which itself it was a kind of it's a very complex and robust um, meditation tradition that was kind of cooked in the sort of Budo Taoist fusion of the Tang Dynasty and came out of that kind of uh, a syncretic um, kind of dialogue between those religions over centuries. So there's a lot there's many kind of Buddhist elements. To the Taoist inner alchemical practice, as we learned it, even like seated meditation itself was brought to uh, brought to China by by Buddhism. Uh, there were kind of contemplative methods, but they were primarily uh, laying down or, or done in different positions. Um, and it was really Buddhism that brought the sort of seated meditation to China, and that was the main form our meditation tradition took. And uh, so, in in that meditation tradition, um, a major part of what you do is cultivate in internal flame. It's kind of inner heat. Um, mm -hmm. practice. And then you use that to melt certain substances and kind of circulate them within your body and stuff. And so I, even after my time in China, I left with a lot of questions about the kind of manufacture and circulation of this inner fire. And I knew that um, Tibet had a really robust inner fire meditative tradition. And so that's kind of a big part of why I started graduate school after I left China in 2014, was to learn classical Tibetan and explore the kind of Vajrayana corpus that was dedicated to the kind of circulation of inner fire. And of course, I found exactly what I was looking for. And there is a, a ton of that in Tibetan. It's really um, incredible. And so my, my thesis project was I was going to triangulate uh, Taoist inner fire meditative kind of models with those from Tibetan Buddhism. And the way I framed that project was I want to do a comparative project between the subtle body in Taoism and subtle bodies in a kind of Tibetan tantric Buddhism with an eye toward inner flame. And um, as part of doing that, I, I started scouring. I was like, surely someone's done a history of the subtle body because it's a term that shows up in like every field um, from, uh, you know, Indology to uh, Taoist studies, certainly Tibetology. It's also used in kind of the modern occultist milieu. You had artists and kind of occultists and surrealists and it, people have been using this term, like ev assuming everybody kind of understands what it means. Um, but I, I found that no one had actually gone through and actually done a, a rigorous history of the idea. Um, and so I started doing that as sort of like a, a preamble to actually working on my dissertation. But as so often happens, that preamble project just became my dissertation. 
Um, and so I ended up producing this monograph that was just really supposed to be laying the groundwork for the project I really wanted to do, which is something I'm still working on. Yeah, there's a lot in there. There's a lot of connections. And there's another tension that runs through your book, which I think is hinted at in what you've just described, which is this, well, I would, this one, I probably would call it a tension between the desire to kind of find an answer to something that's already there, and then discovering on the way that the thing is far more complex, or in, in another way, we might say far richer and far more open than we originally realized. And I think in a way that informs as well the snippets of your own story that are woven throughout the book. There's a kind of, what would I call it? There's a lack of cynicism. You know, I think it's very common for people who've gone through martial arts, certainly the more spiritual form, uh, or some kind of meditation practice that might come from a more exotic country like Tibet, to almost become disenchanted by, you know, engaging in academic study and discovering, oh, it's not quite how I thought it might be, or what I was looking for doesn't turn out to be quite there. Would, would you say that defines to some degree your own experience? Or if not, how have you managed to maintain a kind of a kind of appreciation for the, the journey you're in rather than a kind of cynicism and loss of some kind of uh, the, the more spiritual sides of life? Yeah, that's a huge question. Because I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about in this sort of the natural tendency towards cynicism um, that itself is kind of a part of this the process of what I, I kind of, I'm, I model this, what I can, I don't actually call this in the book, but it's like an Orientalist dialectic mm. where um, as Westerners approaching these Eastern traditions with their robust kind of uh, mystical oeuvres and, and what have you, um, there's always a lot of projection in the very early stages of this engagement, um, which is, you know, comes from things, well, certainly in the martial arts context, like martial arts movies, and just sort of the, the kind of um, Orientalist media as they um, have proliferated since the counterculture, specifically for, for my generation. Um, so there, you're kind of going toward this imagined world, and there always is a kind of moment when the reality is jarring and it's not what you thought it was. And I think a natural reaction to that is cynicism, to view the entire thing through a kind of um, reductive lens. And mm -hmm. th this is certainly, I think this is the main fashion within academia right now, is to view all Orientalism um, within this kind of, well, you know, um, the neocolonialist vision of mm -hmm. certainly kind of as best represented by Edward Said, um, where, you know, we, we Westerners, we're just kind of colonialists and looking at this stuff. And it's all about kind of domination and exploitation and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, that's certainly kind of correct. And that kind of scholarship has its place. But uh, I think the reason that I, I didn't develop that kind of cynicism that people so often do when engaging in stuff academically was because I had a lived engagement with it um, before that, before I had really gotten into the scholarship on Orientalism in any significant way, which everybody has to do in grad school these days. Um, I lived in China and I, I knew other people and we were all studying new, like Chinese people and we were studying martial arts and meditation and Qigong together, trying to figure this stuff out together, working on these classical Chinese texts together. We had the same questions and the same desires and same hopes. Um, and so all of the kind of reductive neocolonialist models of the academy were just totally non-representative of what I witnessed on the ground mm -hmm. um, in my kind of own ethnographic engagement, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting answer, and I, I appreciate what you shared. I can't help but think to some degree one of the chronic problems of both American and, and European 
academic culture is that despite its attempt at times to go beyond its history, it ends up remaining Eurocentric or Amerocentric in some way because it kind of denies the complexity, the richness and the reality of the present day. Before we kind of get lost, let's say, within the world of Buddhism, part of what's fascinating about your book, and I think it's kind of interesting, certainly for uh, Buddhist practitioners in the West, is that you pick up and you trace through this genealogy of the term, you pick up on the rich tradition that's already, in a sense, in the West, that goes back to Plato and picks up on Neoplatonism. You also look at the the kind of use of the term and the concept within Christianity. Let's have a quick look at that. So could you present an image of at least the use of this subtle body as a concept within, let's say, European traditions that might sort of, uh, well, how should I say, disrupt some of the assumptions about the subtle body that uh, many Buddhists might have today? Tell us a bit more about that. This is something that people have kind of initially engaging with my book and people who didn't necessarily read the book but have kind of heard about it, they are all like, you're writing a history of the subtle body, but you're not actually talking mm-hmm. about Eastern traditions? Like, how can you even do that? Um, and so, but yeah, so so what I do, um, I was very kind of, um, uh, you might say lazy. Um, I was, so, so I was trying to explore this idea of subtle body. And I'm like, well, how do you actually explore this term? Is it, it's a term in English. So obviously the first time it's used is in an Anglophone context. Maybe it's a translation of something, but we'll, we'll figure that when we cross that bridge. And so I actually used the, the kind of Google n-gram analysis mm-hmm. where you can search for terms, and it kind of scans the whole history of literature. And that actually led me back to um, this book from the 17th century, um, the 1670s, by a Cambridge Platonist professor, Ralph Cudworth. Um, it's called The True Intellectual System of the Universe, um, it has a very, very long title. It's just volume one. He never wrote mm. volume two, unfortunately, but it's it's a massive tome and it's super <laughs> poorly organized. Um, this was before, this is kind of before the standardization of English spelling. So things are spelled in mm-hmm. kind of different and interesting ways. And it was certainly before the standardization of a kind of structure of ideas. So the first part of the book is kind of a refutation or an establishment of atheism on its own merits. Sort of he's kind of answering Thomas Hobbes. And then the rest of it is his refutation where he mines like the entire history of philosophy um, to, to refute it. Um, and so so that I was like, okay, this is appears to be the first place that this term subtle body is really used. And it's really um, cordoned off to about a 30-page section in book five of Cudworth's book where he is um, kind of invoking these theories of the uh, kind of vehicles of the soul from the neoplatonists of late antiquity um and so he's he's quoting uh proclus primarily um john philoponus and um porphyry and iamblichus and all of these characters um and, and uh so that actually that points me back to the kind of neoplatonic origins uh that he was drawing from in, in this text and so then that's when i go back to the neoplatonism and that's this is the first chapter of my book this is where we kind of kick it all off um, Oxford wanted me to do a kind of chronological journey through this stuff. So my dissertation begins in the 1600s with Ralph Cudworth, the first place the subtle body really shows up. Um, but then uh, I kind of went back um, to the Neoplatonists, and I have this whole chapter on them that's very it's chewy. It's a chewy chapter, and it's it's the leading chapter in my book. And so I always warn people when they're reading my book, I'm like, look, this is going right into like mm-hmm. hardcore Neoplatonism. So if that's like kind of uh, not your vibe, then feel mm-hmm. free to to just skip it and you can go back to it as you need to or whatever. Um, and so this is, this is how I arrived at this kind of 
uh, this Western use of the of the term subtle body. Um, the kind of conventional wisdom within academia was that subtle body was a kind of um, Orientalist import of the 19th century. This is what you'll see it kind of usually uh, mm -hmm. kind of um, presented, that it was somehow it was tied to theosophy and kind of Indic religions, and it kind of came to the West with those. Um, but what I found was a whole a whole few chapters, actually, before that interaction even happened, where the subtle body exists as a term from Neoplatonism that's then used in kind of Renaissance Platonism, both in um, the kind of Florentine Platonism of uh, Marsilio Ficino um, and uh, the kind of revivification of Hermetic and Neoplatonic philosophies there. And then it moves over. Um, Erasmus kind of really brings it from Italy to, to, um, mm. to Cambridge. Uh, in the beginning of the 16th century, but then it kind of gets pushed underground by Henry VIII, and then really springs in the uh, in the 17th century with the Cambridge mm -hmm. Platonists. Mm -hmm. The Theosophical Society do end up having a, a role in the book too, but uh, I thought it was interesting that you managed to kind of invite your audience, your readers, not to get lost and stuck on that overfocus of that specific time period. Obviously, if you're refusing to settle on a final definition of the subtle body, then the term automatically is open to expansion and the inclusion of many other concepts or descriptions or experiences. To what degree would you include, and do you include in your text, a discussion of things like the aura or um, meridians and systems of chakras beyond the East? Do you find that kind of thing, having a kind of rich history within, within the West and in, in Europe in particular? Is it true that the term does point to some kind of universal characteristic to be found in all cultures, or, or is that simply not the case? Um, yeah, that, so it, it's certainly auras um, have their own very interesting kind of um, history, even within Europhone kind of contexts, um, and also meridians and the kind of Chinese medical um, view of the body and all of this. I mean, that was mm. kind of my own personal starting point, right, that kind of got me into this stuff. So certainly all of these things are very germane to this topic. Um, but I, I, I kind of I keep my my book quite tightly focused on this mm -hmm. specific idea, subtle body, tracing it from like text to text, to te like person who uses it and then cites someone who, who mm -hmm. cites them and who cites them. And kind of as we move forward into the future and I stop around the year 1970, um, because after right there, kind of at the kind of apex of the uh, kind of um, American and European kind of countercultural movements in the 60s and 70s, the idea just explodes into every possible domain. Um, and that's where it comes to mean it, it, it has something in every single tradition in the planet. That's really a kind of post 1970s uh, phenomenon with this with this specific idea that has its uh, kind of genealogy back to Cudworth. But uh, so, so this is, um, again, I'm kind of dodging <laughs> your question, but the reason I kept my, my text so tightly focused yeah. was because yeah. it was my PhD thesis. And I knew that I had a very, um, I have a kind mm -hmm. of a limited attention span. And if I wasn't going to be able to write this book within like a, a year, I knew I was going to mm -hmm. lose focus. Um, and so I, I wanted like something that I could just nail down and pump out. And I actually had no intention of ever publishing this. I didn't think anybody would find this interesting. Um, but it, it just everybody kind of greenlit it the whole way through the publication process, um, for better or for worse. And so, so now now it's out there, including kind of personal details in my life, which I also <laughs> never intended for anyone mm. to read. Um, but yeah, so so what your your question really pertains to whether I do think that there's something kind of mm -hmm. universal about this. And I, I would say um, this is, you know, I don't get into this in the book, but I would say personally that, that yes, I, um, the subtle body um, 
one of the reasons that it's such a kind of magnetic and persistent concept is because it seems to pertain to dimensions of our lived experience um, that are not mm -hmm. necessarily ineffable, not necessarily unable to be expressed linguistically, but find difficulty in being in kind of having linguistic or otherwise aesthetic expressions. Um, so it's something that people are perpetually, uh, it's almost like an, um, like a mystery that every, that people are kind of, we secrete around it and we try to encapsulate it in our different kind of epistemologies and metaphysics. Um, but it remains kind of ultimately, uh, unavailable. It kind of, any capture of it is inevitably mm -hmm. kind of unsatisfying. Um, and that's just a kind of a central mm -hmm. part of the concept actually. That's great. And there are a couple of themes that are going to pop up with follow on questions. So. In looking into your book uh, and thinking about this topic, it is touched on briefly in other texts, whether they be academic texts on Tantric Buddhism or other features. The only book that I found of any substance that does touch on this topic is uh, one, I think it was edited by Jeffrey Samuel. I think it's Religion and the Subtle Body in Asia and the West. Yeah, the Rutledge volume. Yeah, that's the one, exactly. Yeah, and I've taken a look at that, and that's pretty good, actually, as a kind of companion piece to your own work. I'm not surprised it did get published just because, as you've described, it is a topic which we talk about and in other forms is ubiquitous in Western society these days. So it's good to see some academic work picking up on that. Let's talk a little bit about Buddhism and Tibet because it does come up in the text. And I, and I wonder if you can answer this one. So Obviously, if you're looking at Mahayana Buddhism and Tantric Buddhism and then Buddhism's movement into Tibet, it has a very strong relationship with Hinduism and the, the Indian culture at the time. I wonder to what degree the Tibetans and Buddhists more generally at the height of uh, Mahayana culture in, in, in India innovated and actually developed further the maps and concepts and practices based in this concept of the subtle body. Can you speak to that at all? Um, so the kind of the Indic context before the Tibetan importation of the subtle body? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think the term, well, so in, in kind of my chapter three of the book is where I get to the kind of uh, how Indological Indic sources become kind of implicated in this hitherto Anglophone discourse on the subtle body. And it's about mm -hmm. kind of, um, you know, British colonial Indologists translating texts out of, out of Sanskrit um, at the first time subtle body is really used. It's, it's a text from Samkhya, which is one of these, one of the six kind of traditional Hindu darshanas, uh, schools of, of Indian philosophy. Um, that was a, the kind of like metaphysical philosophical foundation of, of what we think of as yoga, the yoga, um, tradition. Um, and so it's translations of texts from Samkhya, yoga, and Vedanta is where kind of scholars began to link up these Cambridge Platonists and their ideas with texts from Sanskrit. And suddenly now subtle body refers to things in Sanskrit contexts. But the, the terms they were translating in Sanskrit actually aren't really very well represented by the term subtle body as it's used by the Cambridge Platonists because it has a, they have their own very interesting kind of genealogies within, within Indic language contexts. So linga sharira and sukshma sharira are the two main terms that he uses. And they, they also use it to refer to the koshas, these kind of sheaths of this of the kind of body from Vedanta. Um, so there were very robust um, Indic traditions um, that dealt with these issues of kind of embodiment and the relationship between the body and whatever part of you kind of reincarnates. Because, I mean, the whole kind of complex of Indic religious life um, 
well, I mean, so so there are there are kind of ways of complexifying what I'm about to say. So just note that this is a kind of basically a simplification, but uh, dealt mm. with kind of karma, samsara, reincarnation, and moksha, some sort of release from this cycle of reincarnation. And so these were the kind of things that were taken as uh, as gr for granted in the development of these kind of Indic subtle body discourses. Um, and then the you know the tantric tradition really developed in, in a kind of northern India in the kind of um, high middle ages. Um, and it's really out of that context that you get these um, channeled, ultimately channeled texts, the Buddhist tantras, um, that give very detailed uh, rundowns of the structure and function of the subtle body um, and the different practices associated with it. Um, so like pe people assume that a lot of these dimensions of the subtle body go way back in Indic history. But for example, the mm. first time that chakras are ever mentioned in a text is actually from the kind of 7th or 8th century CE um, in a play from northern India um, in, mm. in association with the kind of um, some Shaivite uh, ascetics in this play. Um, so a lot of that this stuff actually has a, a kind of a much later history than people realize. And a lot of the these ways, the kind of the normal way of talking about subtle bodies, about the kind of the channels and the chakras and then the bindus and these sort of things, is it's only really nailed down in the kind of um, mid to late centuries of the first millennium of the common era, which is right mm -hmm. when Buddhism started its trek into the Himalayas, into Tibet. Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. I wonder to what degree, though, that is a statement about the records of the time or whether it, it really does speak to some kind of innovation, uh, a massive change within uh, the Indic culture of the time. But I, I guess we can only speculate on such matters. I'm, I'm a stodgy historian, so I'm like, what, what, do, <laughs> what can texts tell us? Uh, but yeah, again, once it, so there were kind of robust oral traditions that these things may actually go back millennia. It's mm. just um, hard to make those historical claims um, because you don't necessarily have the textual support to yeah. really make a solid case for that necessarily. But that's not to say that it's not the case, kind of not to rule it out entirely. No, no. No, and I think it's always interesting to get the, the historical context, especially if you're a practitioner, because it does, to some degree, recontextualize the ideas you bring to practice and the kind of mythology that gets woven into that. Mm -hmm. So now the subtle body falls into the category of, of non-dual views of reality. And the boundaries between the material and the immaterial are certainly a feature of this. And I, a, a question that's always in the back of my mind as somebody who engages in such practices is, you know, whether we can say that the same is true for consciousness and the subtle body. That is to say, you know, the subtle body could be an extension of just consciousness to some degree. Uh, the question is the following, though. Are they ultimately one and the same, consciousness and the, the subtle body? And I wonder to some degree whether uh, taking such a view might lead to some form of panpsychism. Any thoughts on, on that question? Yeah, as, as far as the, the subtle body, I mean, I kind of addressed this throughout my book. It's contextualized within many different kind of metaphysical schemas um, from, uh, I mean, Aristotle uses the term soma leptomeres, which is literally soma body, leptomeres, subtle, like lepton, like a kind of very subtle subatomic particle. Um, so subtle body is used in Aristotle, and he's referring to Heraclitus, um, and then uh, kind of Tetales of Miletus. And so these he's referring to these pre-Socratic philosophers who were monists, um, kind of substrate monists who viewed the, but he kind of hypothesizes they had their own sort of subtle body visions. Um, but then in, in kind of Ralph Cudworth, the Cambridge Platonist, he's actually a dualist. 
So he thinks that kind of atomic philosophy of Democritus and of Epicurus, as kind of presented by Hobbes, actually his his main kind of uh, rhetorical enemy, he thinks it is true, but it's only half his story, and that there's also kind of God, the causal principle. And then he spends his entire book trying to kind of square this dualism. And the subtle body is a term that he asserts is kind of the in the middle terrain that kind of ties these dual substances together. So it's not necessarily just a term that's used in a kind of monistic context. It has dualistic contexts as well. Mm -hmm. Samkhya's were also dualists, mm -hmm. um, whereas Vedanta was was monist. Um, but uh, so, yeah, when we're talking about the term consciousness, um, this is a term that we use uh, very commonly these days. Um, and it's I find consciousness a very uh, kind of metaphysically uh, fuzzy term because um, <laughs> uh, people they, they usually they often kind of will invoke consciousness. And once again, it's one of these terms that we all say it like we're all talking about the same <laughs> right. thing. But like usually usually we're not. So when mm. we talk about consciousness um, as uh, the subtle body. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we can do that in a certainly in an idealist context where everything is kind of consciousness, um, which is it certainly has its own presence in the kind of yogacara mind only or like sort of phenomenal ontological, phenomenological ontological views within Buddhism. Um, you can make that case. And I think it is actually made in the Buddhist historical tradition. But um, it's often consciousness is just as often used by kind of reductive or um, well, yeah, just reductive physicalist or materialist paradigms as a sort of epiphenomenon of the kind of, um, you know, electrochemical action of, of neurons or what what have you, mm -hmm. um, in which case the subtle body can be thought of as something that's kind of basically imaginary. Um, and imaginary is a term that's, I find it kind of internally incoherent in, inside a kind of reductive physicalist paradigm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't need to split those hairs. Um, so yeah, this is all I'm saying is kind of, and this is what I do in my book. I'm just showing that you can actually con contextualize this concept within kind of any sort of metaph metaphysical framework that you want to. Um, so I don't know if once again you're trying to pin me down on my own point of view, um, <laughs> but uh, you can kind of take it anywhere you want to. The personal and let's say the subjective and the objective are always at play to some degree, and mm. wherever we choose to respond in, it in itself is already interesting. So that's absolutely fine. At the time of uh, picking up on your book or discovering your book, actually, I was reading about uh, Henri Bergson, and we'll see if there's a connection there, because he has, well, he was an interesting philosopher in his own right, and an interesting person, uh, controversial according to certain philosophers, um, but certainly a, a great mind and a great thinker, and he has this idea of élan vital, mm -hmm. which I'm sure I've butchered the pronunciation there, but that doesn't matter too much. Sounds um, good to me. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. But he's one of those philosophers, you know, who's willing to kind of think beyond the boundaries of the sort of social norms of his time and, and permitted thought. And I just wondered, I mean, this concept, as you've described it and you develop in your book, is so open. And as you've just described now, can be placed into so many different ontological and metaphysical models for thinking about and locating meaning and describing, uh, you know, uh, real or less real abstract or more concrete phenomena. I wonder to what degree it's possible for, for, for a philosopher today, especially in the academic world, to kind of branch out and think more creatively about a concept such as vitalism or the subtle body, or as you were describing rightly before, consciousness. So it's not just left in the hands of the cognitive scientists who can be quite boring about such matters. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there is a question here, though, and the, the question would be something like this. I mean, 
Do you think philosophers and intellectuals, and that's going to include you too, of course, who broach such topics as the subtle body are either destined to be marginalized by their fields, as, as Bergson eventually was, or end up being kind of straitjacketed by the constraints of the rational? I think that, uh, like, you know, uh, maybe like 10 or 15 years ago, I would have answered this question differently. But I think nowadays, hmm. um, and I, I kind of point to this in the introduction of my book, I reference kind of new um, ways of thinking and new worldviews are kind of actually taking hold within academia. And I, I reference kind of new materialism is a sort of uh, a very heterogeneous movement of different ways of thinking about the world and about agency. And a lot of people characterize things under that umbrella as kind of forms of neo-animism. So mm. considering the kind of consciousness of, of well, animals, like imagine that animals are conscious, um, but also plants um, and even kind of mineral life. Um, so th this, there's kind of spaces are opening up for this within academia, um, and so, and vitalism as well. So kind of there was the vitalism of Bergson um, and his the kind of Elan Vital, and that was sort of seen as something that was kind of debunked by this sort of like structuralist move in the biosciences that happened in kind of starting in the 1930s and really was kind of like locked into place by the discovery of the kind of double helix structure of the DNA molecule by, by Watson and Crick, you know, because then kind of bi the biosciences became strictly about finding these little kind of crystalline structures and discovering how they function. But now we're kind of in the midst of this sort of like we've mapped the human genome. And I think there's kind of a biosciences crisis where like our understanding of genes actually doesn't really get us nearly as far as we thought it would. Um, and so now there's, uh, I think the pendulum is kind of flipping back in the kind of other direction. And so that's, you can, you can be a kind of out of the closet neo-vitalist philosopher these days, <laughs> and you can still get, you know, uh, postdocs and probably tenure and stuff like that. Um, so the ground is shifting, but I think the, all, a lot of these fields are still so new that it kind of remains to be seen whether these are just kind of like Twitter, like fashion philosophies, or if there's actually like some substance to them, you know? <clears throat> um, and so certainly I, my, my book would certainly fall under this category of a kind of neo, uh, neo-vitalist, I guess you could say, in, in my final conclusion where I actually do kind of make an attempt at saying what I, what I think about this sort of thing. Um, so I, I, yeah, this is all to say that the the kind of everything everything is shifting, and while there may not be kind of um, the straitjacket of rationality binding people into kind of metaphysical and epistemological kind of uh, cubicles anymore, there is very much the um, the straitjacket of economics, and um, so mm -hmm. and the kind of more general crisis in the humanities, and that they uh, they don't get people jobs anymore. The economy has shifted in this direction, where kind of universities are basically becoming glorified trade schools um, for a kind of professional managerial class. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I, I I can get pretty dark on this stuff. I decided not to continue in academia for a variety of reasons. Um, so I, I, but let's not get sidetracked on that necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no need, no need. We have critiqued the academic world and this particular feature that you've just hinted at uh, on the podcast. So <laughs> I can imagine most of our academic and non-academic listeners will be very sympathetic and, <laughs> and know what you're talking about. But uh, before you started down that road, I mean, the, the thing you were saying before about this expansion of what's possible in, in the academic world is, is a good thing, I think. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of a book, which I, I can't see on my shelf here, it was by a British academic, I think from Southampton University, and he was the first person that I ever read who introduced the idea of queer theory, but queer mm. theory in a much 
a larger sense rather than just related to gender or sexuality, but this mm-hmm. opening up of a capacity to go beyond the kind of norms of a given field of thought. And I found it very interesting. And he was bringing in new language. And this is already back right at the beginning of the 2000s. So maybe that, that's picking up a cool. bit. But uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I like what you mentioned about new materialism, because it was an idea I was thinking about a few years back too. We've been involved in a few projects with the podcast. One of them is, is uh, many listeners will be familiar with, which is exploring the work of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism. And one of the things that does, in a sense, is it seeks to enable its users to avoid getting stuck in dichotomies, right, of the material or the immaterial or the rational or the irrational. And it, it, my experience is sort of, it's, it's a tool for thinking far more creatively about absolutely anything. Uh, but one thing I think it does, which is interesting and may be important to some of these new emergent uh, forms of thought, is that it helps, I think, the practitioner to remain cautious about their own desire and the way that desire can overlay or overforce one's hand in what one looks for, which again is something I found interesting about your text because I think, although you've kind of said it explicitly in response to an earlier question, I think it is visible in your text that you're you're exploring that very interesting space between having a personal investment but staying incredibly open to the possibilities of your ideas uh, being changed or new discoveries being made and not being, in a sense, trapped by your own desire for the journey to head off in one direction uh, <laughs> rather than another. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you about what you're going to do if you're not necessarily staying within academia, but let's stick with your book first and we'll put that on the shelf at the end uh, cool. of the conversation. One thing that is, I think, something you have to broach at some point, whether it be due to a a philosophical thought or because you're a deep practitioner but you have a critical mind is whether all of this all of the subtle body information all of it is fundamentally rooted in the imagination and whether it really is a kind of an interesting array of collective fantasies right the second question that follows that up which is less is not really a critique but it's perhaps the question that comes next is isn't it amazing if that were the case? Wouldn't it be amazing to think that the imagination is so powerful to produce such an incredible array of incredibly positive experiences and transformations for the practitioners of these sort of imaginative wonder? Mm-hmm. So if I turn that into a question, has that thought entered your mind? Have you explored it to a, a significant degree beyond the academic retracing of the history of a term? And where would you be today in thinking about that, that division between is this just fantasy and imagination? Or again, is it pointing to something that could exist and does exist, but is very fluid and somehow, as you were saying before, so mystical it's difficult to capture? (laughs) I think the imagination is the central question. The two sides of this question you're asking when you, in the kind of first half, you're asking, is it just imagination, which seems to have this uh, like kind of like that's all it is, a kind of reductive capacity of the imagination. But then the second half you talk of you what but but then the imagination is able to do all of these extraordinary things and change lives and so on and so forth gets to the kind of um, 
yeah, like validating uh, the kind of imagination. And so th I think this this term is, once again, it's one of these really interesting terms that's so common and we kind of use it and take it for granted. But if you really delve into like, what is the imagination, you'll find that there is no kind of, no really satisfying theory of, of what the imagination even is. And so and kind of another um, autobiographical uh, kind of revelation. Uh, my dad is a, is a neuroscientist um, and uh, he come, kind of came out of mathematics and he was doing kind of the mathematics of a uh, hero's dissertation on the kind of how modeling uh, drums and how kind of acoustic wave travel across drums. And then he moved into kind of math bio stuff early in his career and he was modeling muscle fibers. And then he moved into math neuroscience and doing kind of mathematical modeling of small neural nets. And uh, so, I mean, from an early age, dad had me reading um, kind of uh, the, the philosophy of mind stuff that's become the foundation mm. of the field of modern neuroscience, which is a very um, kind of reductive and materialist metaphysic is kind of what they take for granted. Um, kind of uh, Donald Hebb, um, maybe Hebbian learning. My friends in Silicon Valley have asked me if I've heard of Hebbian learning. And I, I was reading Hebb when I was a kid. And he talks about <laughs> um, how basically, you know, that the project of neuroscience like maybe there are immaterial factors impinging on consciousness and all of this stuff that might be true, whatever. But in neuroscience, what we should do, and he, he, this is an essay he wrote in 1951, is kind of like assume that all of consciousness and brain activity is reducible to the actions of kind of neural nets and, and a kind of take that project as far as we can. Um, and so I think there's a good case to be made that we have taken that project as far as we can in some areas, and many things still remain a kind of a great mystery. Um, but yeah, I think like a common way of using the term imagination, people automatically assume that there's something insubstantial to it, um, even if we can't elucidate that with a very great kind of philosophical detail. Um, and But I think like in my own engagement in China, um, I likened what I was doing there um, at an early date to a friend, to, it's like a, what the actors were doing in um, kind of Lord of the Rings. This is sort of like method acting kind of thing. Like I was living in this Taoist context and reading Taoist texts and doing Taoist practices and trying to adopt the worldview as best I could, just almost like LARPing as a Taoist, you know? But I was mm. like, just to see what happens. And then what actually does happen when you really do that and really live in that context and do the kind of cultivation techniques is you begin to experience uh, like very fundamental changes. Um, and you quickly realize that you can't just kind of wave it all away um, with a kind of term like it's all in my imagination or something like that, or, or another kind of equally uh, kind of fuzzy term placebo effect or what have you. Um, so the, the meditation tradition we engaged in in China especially made, made it difficult to think of it all as a product of the imagination because our um, meditation tradi uh, tradition was very scant on kind of visualizations. Uh, it was all about um, what we term uh, kind of interoception, feeling inside your body. So our master just taught us how to sit and how to focus to breathe into your belly. And that's all we did for three years. Um, he didn't teach us anything else. Um, we just did that an hour a night for three years. And then he started teaching us the meditation tradition. And so it's about this kind of manipulation of, of you develop feelings inside your body when you do these techniques over a really long time. And you can kind of move them around and do things with them. And it's obviously not just your imagination. Um, but what it actually is, is, is hard to pin down. And that's one of the reasons they use such kind of abstruse alchemical language in the kind of Taoist tradition, because once again, it's one of these things that's really hard to elucidate. That's great. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. 
That's right. It's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm. Is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counseling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, If you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. I have sympathy for for all of that and uh, and generally I agree. I think one of the one of the reasons though it's good to talk it, about these topics even if we don't necessarily get very far with them <laughs> is just to kind of wrestle the talk of such matters away from the hands of the the remnants of the new age, you mm. know. It's mm-hmm. like why why should it stay there? Why <laughs> should it stay stuck in the hands of the kind of well, I would say uh certainly the fantasists in many ways, although that's probably too cruel as well. I'm sure many of them are having a wonderful time, uh, mm-hmm. whether what they're doing actually relates to some kind of objective reality or not. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess I guess thinking of, about the broader context in which these ideas emerge and the practices develop out of them, 
certainly one interesting tension is between the degree to which engaging with imaginative practices, which may or may not, you know, affect or produce some kind of material consequence, form people into kind of obedient subjects or ideological subjects captured by a religious force or whether they end up becoming some means for genuinely bringing about some growth transformational balance to the individual or group Mm. i think that speaks to a tension that's present in religious culture globally and more broadly in in all contexts so that's another feature that comes in but the final thought that came to my mind while i was listening to you is you it reminded me um again, of this dialogue that took place between uh, Heidegger and Ernst Cassirier, or Cassier, whose name, mm-hmm. I, again, I cannot pronounce. Sorry, French <laughs> listeners, I do apologize. But their, their conversation went in, in many directions, but to some degree, it was also about the tension between immanence and transcendence or materialism and the kind of symbolic reality that we all live in. And, you know, Ernst, I'm going to stick with his first name, cool. you know, sort of, <laughs> concluded basically that we are beings that live in a kind of symbolic reality not just a linguistic one and a major part of our of a good human life in community or in society is to find ways to use symbolic reality or the practices of the symbolic Mm -hmm. to bring about you know greater well-being or greater abundance or whatever it is that happens to be the value of the moment for wider society whereas uh, as you're no doubt aware, Heidegger was pushing for some kind of crude, strip it all away and get down to the bare basics. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, in a sense, if what you were describing before was a kind of an acceptance that maybe Ernst was right and Heidegger was wrong. And part of the, the stories about the subtle body is that they are all attempts to find practices and a kind of symbolic reality that does lead to some kind of meaningful personal transformation. Uh, you have any th- thoughts on that comment? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, I would definitely uh, side with Ernst here, our old buddy Ernst. And uh, he, his his position is very similar um, to a much less respectable uh, intellectual who I talk about in my book, Alistair Crowley, um, mm. who has he kind of deals with this uh, very issue with a kind of great uh, kind of insight and humor. Um, mm. And uh, he, he has quotes like we live in a forest of symbols. Um mm. And he has this, uh, I kind of, I think I start, well, I, I give a little bit of auto kind of biographical detail on, on Crowley. Um, this is a chapter actually that, that Oxford requested I include. Um, I kind of, when I, I was putting, uh, sent them my book, I said I had sketches of a number of other chapters and mm. they chose this one out of, out of over Paracelsus at the end of the day. Um, so <laughs> I, that was a, much to my surprise. And, and I actually had a great time because I, I kind of got my contract to Oxford right during the height of COVID and so I just spent like three months getting, you know, stimulus checks from the government and reading Crowley and, and finishing up that chapter. Um, so mm. that, that was not nice for me. Uh, Were you compelled at all to engage in some form of black magic? Um, yeah. I mean, well, again, <laughs> you're implying that I wasn't already engaged in black magic before uh, reading. Oh, yeah. well done. All right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I continued my, mac, my black magical practice. Fantastic. And, um, and uh, so, yeah, Crowley, he, he talks... Uh, probably in yeah similar it seems like content wise to what what Ernst was saying um, about how we live in this forest of symbols and he has this great story about uh, kind of two men on a train and one of them has a a box that's full of holes and the other guy looks over and kind of eventually his curiosity gets the better of him and he asks the box carrying fellow what what's in his box and uh, in kind of 
not interested in for like furthering this conversation. The box carrying guy says mongoose, and uh, kind of it's like, oh, you have a mongoose. And so, but eventually the kind of querying fellow, uh, once again, his curiosity gets the better of him, and he says, why do you why do you have a mongoose with you on this train? So somewhere in England, um, and the guy says, well, see, my brother, uh, he has a terrible drinking problem, and he sees snakes all around him all the time. Um, and then he kind of, once again, tries to leave the conversation off right there. But the querying fellow says, "What? Uh, but say, those, those aren't real snakes he's seeing around him, are they? And the guy says, no, but this isn't a real mongoose either. Um, and Crowley says, if you kind of understand that, that little parable, which he's called a perfect parable of magic, then you kind of understand what, what magic is all about. And I think that, you know, you can view that parable through many different lenses. And I think the same thing can be applied to the subtle body. So whether it's real or not is most often of a kind of secondary or tertiary concern, um, because it's usually being employed in a kind of uh, a, within a kind of cult regime of cultivation or a regime of, of healing um, mm. just as often, especially in kind of like new age context and stuff like that. Um, so kind of what's real and what's not. Um, these kind of esoteric questions are less important than the kind of practical deployment of these kind of imaginal regimes within the context in which people are using them. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Although I think uh, Crowley is also a, a good symbolic representation of the question, though, that, uh, you know, it's not a case of anything goes, <laughs> right? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> if anything goes, you know, we end up with all these wonderful gurus getting up to all sorts of nonsense Oh yeah, mm -hmm. producing what we might call the dark side of all of this, which could be something akin to a, a collective hallucination for the benefit of the, the all-knowing wise one at the top of the pyramid. But that's that's another conversation, most likely. Um, there is, though, I, I would I would challenge this one thing, maybe, in a very gentle manner, the the idea that it's all imaginary, because there are obviously a few figures who could produce some sort of physical consequence of engaging in things like tumor or, or other breathing techniques. Mm -hmm. One being Mr. Famous himself, Wim Hof, mm -hmm. but also, of course, the, 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 the famous Tibetan monks who use tumor to dry sheets out and below uh, zero temperatures just using the breath. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting, I would say, very material way into perhaps at least exploring the degree to which we can measure such things mm -hmm. and their effect on the the material. Have you looked into that much? Oh, yeah. Yeah, certainly. This is a, a topic of great interest to me, especially now, um, kind of where I'm headed with this stuff in my uh, non but somewhat para-academic career that I'm, I'm starting mm -hmm. out on. Um, and the kind of the we're actually starting a whole series of kind of an inquiry into <clears throat> the, the subtle body um, at the Esalen Institute um, and the kind of the the theme we've we're kind of moving forward with um, is like a science in the subtle body. So th this is certainly a topic of, of major concern. And and this these kind of this very epistemological question that you're asking, you're probing about whether it's kind of it's just the imagination or it's kind of somehow like in what way is it related to the imagination? I suppose is what we could put it. Um, is a, a central question to that. And yeah, there have been um, scientific studies done on this stuff. Um, this kind of uh, the term biofield was was coined by um, the National Institute of Health in the 1990s, and since then there have been thousands of papers exploring these kind of different what, what we might think of as kind of aura-related and kind of energetic healing sort of things, producing kind of very interesting um, results that seem to challenge a kind of reductive, it's all the imagination kind of view of the subject 
Um, and also TUMO, there have been multiple scientific papers now where scientists have gone and done a kind of uh, temperature measurements of people engaging TUMO practices. Uh, most, there was a kind of great paper in 2013 where they went to a nunnery in Sichuan province in uh, Western China and the nuns there did several different varieties of TUMO, including like a softer walking version and then a more wrathful seated version and produced like significant temperature differentials in their bodies. And I, myself, I've also done TUMO. I've, I've been studying it under the kind of bun post for the past several years and have, I mean, I've experienced it myself. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, there's no question <laughs> in my mind that this mm -hmm. stuff is real. But I think the question for me is what is the imagination? Um, because uh, I don't think it's cordoned off from what is ultimately real. I think what what is real is kind of like I'm walking around my house right now that I built, and this whole house existed in my imagination before it ever existed in reality. And so somehow I'm kind of walking around within the furniture of my own mind, quite literally. Um, so th there's just a strange non-dual relationship between what is imagined and what is real. Um, and the subtle body is one of these things that inserts itself right into that problem and kind mm -hmm. of just uh, mixes everything up you know yeah yeah it certainly does but that that's the site where inquiry i think finds its most meaning right because it is important for us both individually and in collectives whether that be two people or uh you know a continent or uh you know the global community of human beings actually think about such things especially when we have this overlay on reality which has often been defined as the hyper real which social media and our plugging into the internet seems to be causing. Mm -hmm. So that's also interesting. But again, very, very big open fields of inquiry. Um, I'd like to stay with philosophy just a little bit longer because there are a few other philosophers who do get a mention in the book. And one uh, is Nietzsche, who uh, we had a guest on not so long ago talking about. Why does he get a mention in the text? What, what's going on there? So yeah, this was a very strange fact I, thing I found. Um, I was uh, writing sort of my, my genealogy led me toward Carl Jung. Um, the, the textual tra trail just led in his direction. And uh, so I, as I'm tracing the semantic range, the kind of expansion of the semantic range of the term subtle body from kind of Neoplatonism to the kind of Cambridge uh, Renaissance Platonist milieu to in, then in the Indologist loop in Sanskrit terms and the Theosophist loop in uh, like Tibetan stuff. And then it's really Carl Jung uh, working with Richard Wilhelm, the uh, German sinologist, who brings in uh, Chinese sources in his their, The Secret of the Golden Flower, um, which was a, a very strange Taoist alchemical text that they had a kind of corrupted version, a truncated recension of. And then Wilhelm did his own very idiosyncratic translation with Jung's even more idiosyncratic commentary on it. Um, so I've studied the text in classical Chinese and I've, I've read Jung's commentary side by side. And it's just fascinating, like the, the parallax and in interpretation that you get mm. um, when you kind of engage in that way. Uh, so, but so um, I have a whole chapter on Jung, and so I was uh, once again I went through Jung's entire corpus, and I did a lot of kind of control F looking through PDFs to find the term subtle body um, in different kind of contexts. And uh, there's kind of there's two, two versions of Jung's collected works. Um, I think there's I think one one is a a Princeton version, and then the Rutledge version. Where's Stanford? Uh, anyway, um, and it, neither of those actually have everything he wrote. Neither of them, and so one of the things that was missing was his. Um, he wrote, uh, had a series of seminars on Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra, um, kind of pub published in two volumes, and within that, the term subtle body is mentioned fifty-three times. And so this is um, kind of quite late in Jung's career. Um, and then, uh, so I go through this, and you know, m me personally, I've actually never found Nietzsche very interesting. 
Um, I read his kind of Birth of Tragedy. <laughs> I read The Antichrist when I was like a teenager, but it never really vibed with me. It, it, it seemed mm -hmm. kind of like boring um, and derivative. And I tried to read Thus Spake Zarathustra and like my brother, like he, he actually like broke down in tears reading Thus Spake Zarathustra. It really spoke to him, but I could never actually even get to the end. Um, mm. But then when mm. I, when I'm reading Jung's commentary on Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra, that totally enthralled me. And so I read all, you know, with a thousand pages of that or whatever. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, Jung makes this, the very strange um, argument that anytime we see the term body in Nietzsche, he's actually talking about the subtle body. Um, which I've never seen anyone make a, an argument, anything like that. I mean, the kind of, it goes, to, flies totally in the face of the conventional academic kind of like biological readings of Nietzsche, um, or even the kind of like Heideggerian kind of metaphysical readings of Nietzsche. Um, so uh, that, that's, how, that's how Nietzsche gets, gets looped in through Jung. And then Jung kind of actually, you know, they, um, they weren't of the same generation, but Nietzsche, uh, Jung had an uncle who used to party with Nietzsche and so Jung's uh, seminars are full of these great stories. They're all in the footnotes of like, just like what a, what a kind of crazy uh, kind of pathological character he was, as Jung puts mm. it, how he'd mm. be um, like playing piano at a party and he would just start playing so loud that like his, he would like actually crack his fingernails and his fingers would be bleeding all over the piano and he'd just keep playing and smashing. And everyone was like, what's wrong with this guy? Um, <laughs> and so Jung actually, he traces the kind of, Nietzsche's pathology and his kind of descent into madness in the in terms of the subtle body and how Nietzsche was basically sort of carried off by this sort of like subtle imaginal dimension of himself out of mm. his physical body. Um, and so his his kind of mind had had left the the mm. building uh, before his physical body had expired. Um, wow. So, yeah, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So wasn't it syphilis was playing the piano, perhaps? Wasn't that? <laughs> I I'm not an academic. Uh, I enjoy philosophy, but I often prefer to read books about these great thinkers just because I find them more interesting too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's also interesting from a personal note is that my mum had Young's book on the shelf. Really? Yeah, she did. Cool. And I looked at it when I was quite young, and I, I yeah, it was it was both fascinating but uh, inaccessible for my 14 year old mind. So I never read it. Mm -hmm. It was the kind of symbolic element in the New Age bookshelf that my mum uh, <laughs> had put together. Cool. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, Wilhelm Reich. I looked through your book. I didn't remember mm. seeing anything about his organ theory and his uh, orgasm machines in there. Have you looked into that? And did you consider putting any of that in there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love Reich. I actually looked through all of Reich. I, I looked all over Reich for his for any time he might have used the term subtle body so I could justify yeah. including him in my genealogy. <laughs> right. But I actually didn't find it anywhere. Um, uh, so okay. even though like obviously like Orgone and everything Reich is doing, he's searching for bions like these these mm. kind of like subtle, like vitalistic kind of, um, you know, molecules and stuff like this. There's a great uh, recent book, Wilhelm Reich, Biologist, that kind of tells the story of his biological explorations. Um, yeah, that's a, so even though he's obviously germane to the topic, um, I couldn't, he didn't actually use the term subtle body or appear mm. to, and he wasn't engaging in the same kind of hit currents from the history of ideas that have their kind of sources back in the Neoplatonists. The way, I mean, Jung is very much indebted to Neoplatonism and he makes no kind of bones of he doesn't even try to hide it but Wilhelm doesn't appear to really have engaged with the Neoplatonists at all I mean he himself identified as a, as a communist as a Marxist um, kind of dialectical materialist um, and so 
his stuff, I would think, would be more indebted to this kind of line that I don't get into in my book because it would have just – there's really another book altogether that goes back kind of through the European kind of mesmeric animal magnetic tradition that goes back into mm. kind of Paracelsus and this kind of like um, hermetic sympathy that really kind of gets pronounced in the Renaissance but actually has a trajectory all the way back through kind of um, like Germanic medical and kind of European folk medicine and stuff like that into late antiquity. Um, so I, I, I would think that you know, Reich is probably more part of that genealogy, which um, I uh, hopefully someone else will write that PhD someday. <laughs> I also think somebody should make a, a film about, about Wilhelm Reich. I can't believe nobody's done it yet. I mean, he, yeah. you could have such fun with that. Totally. You know, yeah. just telling this story in itself would be fascinating. But if you had a, a creative writer and director, they could put something quite far out out there and uh, I'd, I'd love to watch it, but hey, <laughs> we'll have to wait for that one too, I guess. Yeah. Now, you, you've gone all over the place with this book, uh, even as you were disciplined. I mean, there must have been some unexpected insights that emerge. Are, are there one or two that you haven't touched on so far in the conversation that stand out as kind of fascinating and unexpected insights? Fascinating and unexpected insights. Yeah, I mean, like, as you've kind of pointed, intuited, um, I did. I approached this thing with a, a pretty kind of open mind um, and kind of an open. It was an open-ended inquiry. I, I didn't know where it was gonna head or lead, um, and I, I actually didn't know why I would fold in my own autobiographical dimension in it as well. Um, so a, a kind of really unexpected insight was actually the process of actually telling my own story alongside this very kind of academic, textual, historical kind of narrative that I weave in the book, and how that has a kind of it. Well, I was doing all of this in the context of uh, my my thesis advisor, Jeff Kripal. He's on the board uh, at at um, the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, and so Esalen itself is a. I included this line in, in the book about how Esalen was like the institutional source of the New Age. Um, but I was kind of having chats with Mike Murphy, who is the guy who created Esalen, and Mike was like, "No, like you, that's not true. You you can't say that." And so we kind of went back and forth on it a little bit, and eventually mm -hmm. I, I kind of took that out of the book because um, kind of he doesn't identify Esalen, so he kind of has a different sort of genealogy of the New Age. But no matter how you kind of like uh, slice it, Esalen has been kind of involved in the kind of flourishing and development of kind of new age discourses, certainly in kind of American religious culture. I assume since that you're familiar with Esalen, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they have a kind of public programming side that's had a pretty kind of new agey thrust until very recently. There's been a lot of turnover kind of during COVID. And now the Institute's kind of heading in a different, more kind of neo-traditionalist direction, it seems like. Um, mm -hmm. But there's also a private kind of think tank where they've been hosting these um, kind of invitation-only uh, kind of symposia, where they invite scholars in to talk about kind of fringe subjects. And um, quite often, the subtle body is something that comes up. And uh, so as I was writing this book, I was also kind of going to these things at Esalen. And in these contexts, it's not like a normal academic conference because they're really intimate, and you can really talk about far-out things you can't talk about in normal academic contexts. Um, because mm -hmm. it has a, it just has a different structure altogether, and so mm -hmm. the kind of my personal and narrative and the kind of public uh, crit historical critical narrative they really kind of like uh, melted into one another in a lot of places, and it I don't know I I basically I kind of created uh, a vision of myself in that book that didn't really exist before, 
um, but then I've kind of become the person that I wrote into existence. And that's been a very topsy-turvy um, and kind of interesting thing, especially as people are now reading this book and I'm having conversations like this one with very intelligent people. Um, so th that sort of dialectical process of uh, kind of the external narrative and my internal experience of my own life has been really strange and unexpected mm. um, and somewhat disorienting, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and an interesting reward for all the hard work you put into it, right? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking about the Esalen Institute, certainly I would have associated it with the new age. Part of my surprise was actually realizing that it's still going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit older now, so I'm far more tolerant than I used to be. I used to be quite harsh on the new age because I became a teenager in the 1990s in Britain and yeah. I live just up the road from Glastonbury. It does come back to a core theme we've been discussing today, which is the degree to which the imagination individually and collectively produces possibilities, right, mm -hmm. of transformation of experience and of uh, certainly, I think in those years, a kind of reaction against the uh, the tail end of, in Britain, 1950s conservatism. Mm -hmm. It was the death knoll of that. You're leaving academia, or at least to some degree. Mm -hmm. What's on the horizon? Do you, do you have another book project coming up? Are you... Uh, going to try and uh, you know melt a wet blanket in the snow somewhere in the states <laughs> uh, or uh, or what what's next for simon cox well yeah so um when i was in china i uh, met the woman who would become my wife she was a, a canadian woman and she was also in china just on like a little kung fu vacation um and we ended up both staying in china for for uh, from 2008 to 2014 training together in this kind of intensive uh quasi-monastic context, um, and our relationship was kind of an open secret. Um, but uh, anyway, we um, kind of, we had every intention of breaking up after we left China, but we, you know, we tried and it, it didn't work out, so we just had to stay together and we got married. Um, and uh, so she came down to, to Houston and lived with me while I was in grad school. And at the end of grad school, um, yeah, we, we both decided that continuing academia was just like not, not a great idea. The kind of cost benefit analysis of doing that doesn't really make sense anymore. And we didn't I didn't want to have to be like an adjunct in like, no offense, but like Arkansas, you know, for like 15 years or whatever. Um, mm. I guess you can, that that is offensive to Arkansas. So anyway, <laughs> sorry, Arkansas. I mean, apologies, Arkansas. Apart, yeah. Apologies, Arkansas. They have some great hot springs. But but uh, yeah, anyway, so um, so then uh, we actually we took a road trip from my parents' house in New Mexico to where her parents live in British Columbia, and we just kind of made a list of like uh, all the places we s saw in between, and uh, we settled mm -hmm. in the coolest one, which is this small town um, in southern British Columbia, um, Penticton, and uh, so we just came here and kind of tried to make a life for ourselves, and now she has a great job, and we just opened our own kung fu school, um, so that's like my main occupation, but I keep getting kind of uh, Esalen kind of keeps calling me back. And so I'm going to these things at Esalen. Now we're starting this whole kind of initiative and I'm going to be writing kind of columns for their website and stuff on this kind of uh, really a kind of an attempt at a disciplined inquiry into the subtle body, um, which has never really been done before because it's such a, a massive topic um, that it's sort of just like, it, it's too, it's kind of too large and inquiries into it just dissolve um, kind of out of their own uh, kind of overweightedness um, and so now we're kind of trying a new thing and we have, it's, we're bringing in kind of, 
you know, humanist scholars, uh, scientists, and kind of experiencers, and having trying to have fruitful conversations that actually kind of like move us forward in our understanding of this subject. Um, so if there is a kind of academic dimension to my future, it's through there. But I also have a number of books, um, kind of just compilations of texts from the lineage of Taoism under which I studied in China that I'm, I'm kind of putting those into books now, um, writing kind of historical introductions and compiling these texts. And my first one is on inner alchemy, the, the meditative oh. tradition that we studied in China. But it's, it's really a, comp a compilation of texts from classical Chinese. Um, so I, I don't have any big synthetic historical projects that span 2,500 years, like my dissertation <laughs> in the near future. It's all just mm. kind of stuff for the kind of international Taoist community, really. Ah, interesting. It sounds like it'd be far more rewarding doing that than uh, being an adjunct professor, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you probably made the right decision, especially with the, the direction things are likely going to go <laughs> in the academic world, right? Thanks. Yeah. D did you ever have a flirtation with academia yourself? No, no, no. <laughs> Good for you. I prefer direct experience of all the wonderful things that I could have spent my life studying. Yes. So there it is. Cool. I'm also a Tuma practitioner, just like you. Oh, great. What what uh, what lineage? Uh, Chakra Samvara Tantra. Oh, oh okay. Direct. Okay, right to the source. Yeah, right, right to that. <laughs> yeah, it's an odd one because I mean we've been going for eight years now with the podcast, and we we started off filling a gap of taking a critical approach to discussing all of this stuff, mm -hmm. right? Whether it be some big concept, which again is hard to pin down, surprise, surprise, like enlightenment <laughs> or, or consciousness or emptiness or compassion to critiquing, you know, some of the, what we might call the dysfunctional expressions of Western Buddhism. But I am right there, you know, I love intellectual critique and I, I adore personal experience, which defies reason and uh, mm -hmm. quite happy to carry on with both don't see a problem. So, cool. yeah. Cool. Anyway, Simon, uh, thanks for coming on. It's been good to talk to you, and I've enjoyed uh, picking your, your, your thoughts and your mind about some of these interesting topics, and I appreciated your, your candid responses. Great. Yeah, thanks. This, I mean, I, I really enjoy any opportunity to, you know, try and figure this stuff out. So thanks for having me. Uh, you're most welcome. All the best with uh, your future projects. Thank you.